Welcome to the World of Wishes podcast. I'm Make-Wish Southern Florida's Chief Operating Officer, Richard Kelly, your host for today's episode. Today's episode has a flying theme, so I wanted to tell you about a wish we recently granted for 16-year-old Colin, who wanted to have flying lessons. He recently took his discovery flight at Sky Blue Jet Aviation in Stewart, Florida, and over the next few months will be training to get a pilot's license. We're so excited for Colin and to have his wish granted. Also, did you know that you can support Make-A-Wish by donating your unused air miles? One of our largest wish expenses is air travel, and every mile that you donate will help wish kids and their families reach destinations all over our continent. National carriers such as Delta, American, JetBlue, and United all have formal programs where you can donate miles to Make-A-Wish. Visit wish.org SFLA and search Wishes in Flight to learn more. And now on to today's episode and our special guest, former Wish Kid Marina Armas, who comes from a family of pilots and is a commercial pilot herself. Marina's wish was granted in 2012, and she tells us how her live life like you stole it motto was incorporated into her wish and how that wish set the tone for the remainder of her life. And today's guest uh, is one of my favorite people, Marina Armas. Um, Welcome, Marina. Thank you. Um, it's great to have you here, and uh, we'll get into your wish and, and sort of your journey and your story. But that's um, part of that journey. Let's talk about you know your um, you know your early your childhood and when you right before you got diagnosed. You know, tell us a little bit about what kind of kid you were, um, what kind of young person you were preteen, and then um, and then rolling right into you know your diagnosis. Okay, so growing up, we were always a um, very active family. I have two younger sisters who are my best friends. We grew up very close, but again, very active. Everything we did was at the beach or on the water. We actually, right before I was diagnosed, we were living on a sailboat for a few months out of the year. So again, everything was outside. And uh, again, our house was very close to the beach, so we'd walk to the beach, I think, every day during the summer, go surfing. We had a few surfboards at home, and we'd take those out to the beach and do our best. So again, just very family-oriented. Um, again, family is everything in our household and outside, always outside. I have a father that just can't sit still. So we are going nonstop. And then you're 13, you noticed something wasn't quite right. Mm-hmm. Yep, so I was 13, and my stomach was giving me some trouble for a few months. It would hurt here and there, but I would go to sleep, and when I woke up, it was I would feel better. So I didn't think anything of it. It would hurt. I'd just go to my room, go to sleep, wake up, feel better. So I went through that cycle for, I'd say, about five months. And then we were actually on our sailboat one day, and um, I was lying down, and I noticed that my stomach was slightly distended. And I'm like, hmm, you know, that doesn't really look right. So I show my dad, my mom, and they're like, oh, no, what, tomorrow, or when we get off the boat, I think we were supposed to be on the boat for a few days, we'll go take you to the doctor because they thought it might be my appendix. They weren't sure. But then the next morning, it's so funny, certain memories you have that you remember clear as day. I don't know, I was 8 a.m. and I think I was eating mashed potatoes in a bowl outside and my dad told a joke and I laughed and it hurt so bad, I dropped the mashed potatoes all over the floor with my fork and pretty much doubled over because it hurt so bad. And immediately my parents knew something was really wrong. And they caught me on the dinghy because we were anchored and dinging me into back to land and immediately drove me to the hospital and from there that's really when the whole thing started was it was so fast you know um, immediately I'm getting CAT scans done and meeting with doctors 
They thought it was my appendix. They said, we're gonna go in, remove your appendix. And then, so I never had surgery before in my life. So I'm just already terrified. And when I woke up from the procedure is when, you know, I knew something was wrong because they pulled my sisters from the room. My dad went with my sisters and the surgeon and my mom came in. And that's when um, she told me you have lymphoma. And as a kid, I didn't know what that meant, you know? And that's when she said it's a type of cancer because I thought cancer was cancer. When they diagnose you, they say you have cancer. I didn't know there was different types or anything. And yeah, I remember laying in the bed with my mom and the doctor at the other side and that's when they told me. What was the next, as I told you that, what was the next thing for you? What did they tell you was gonna be next or did they? Again, we were supposed to have a few days. They actually said, take a few days to be with your family before you start all this. And we were supposed to go to the Keys for a couple of days. Again, go to the beach, do something like that, be outside. And um, I just couldn't, I was in so much pain. The next day, they drove me back in and started chemo that day. It, Like I said, it was such a fast experience. I think, gosh, within a week, not even. They, I went into the hospital that first time and then I was on chemotherapy by the week's end. And it was such a fast, fast experience. I mean, I feel like I blinked and all of a sudden I was sitting there hooked up. I can't imagine what's going through your mind or your emotional makeup at that time, being 13 years old and told you have cancer and being in this, all this pain. Do you remember specific things about that, that, time, that time period? It was hard when I was first diagnosed. To be honest, the first question I asked was, um, am I gonna die? Because that's all you think when, again, you don't know much about the illness as a kid, but you know, a lot of people don't make it. You know, everyone was very scared when you heard someone got cancer. So that's the first thing I asked. And they couldn't tell me no. You know, they said, we hope not. I had a surgeon, she was amazing, but she was honest too. She can't lie, and she said, oh, we're gonna do everything in our power so you don't. So that was scary, It's because it, it makes it so real. And then from there, um, I just started thinking of all the things I never got to do. And I had this list of nevers, uh, you know, 13-year-old girl, um, I never went to high school, I never drove a car, I never kissed a boy, I flew to be a pilot since I was a little girl, I never got to fly a plane. There's so many things I've never gotten to experience at 13, and that list was running through my mind. And then, luckily, my family's phenomenal, and they did everything in their power to where they kept me laughing most of the time. I knew one time I actually popped a stitch in my abdomen because I was laughing so hard, and the doctor was like, you got to stop. Like, no more funny movies, nothing, like, because she's messing, you're messing up everything, all my hard work. So um, in that respect, it was, I think, as enjoyable of an experience as I could be. I don't know if that makes sense. But they kept me laughing, and they were there for me the whole time. And then I think another part of me wanted to refuse refuse to believe that it was cancer. Cause, and it's funny, I still do this to this day, and I don't know why, but I just tell people I was sick. Because in my head, it's like, I'm just sick, and I'm going to get better. It wasn't cancer. It was anything. It could have been the common cold from how I described it because I think it was something to help me cope with what I was going through, to just imagine I'm just sick. Yeah, I'm gonna get better any day now. And then you, you, you underwent the treatment and then w did that start you on, on some road to recovery? Yep, so the chemo was about six months. 
of chemotherapy, by the time they diagnosed the lymphoma, it was late stage three because I had waited so long <laughs> to tell people. Um, so again, I'm very grateful that I noticed my stomach wasn't looking too right. Um, because if not, I probably would have continued doing the same thing I did with just not telling anybody and going to sleep. So the chemo was about seven months. It was a pretty aggressive treatment plan. And then by the end of it, they had gotten all the chemo and I went into remission. And then from there, it was just a matter of trying to get my body back to where it was. It was a little difficult because by the time they finished the chemo, it was right at the time high school was starting. So I was starting high school with no hair, you know. Um, I had a wig, and it was actually sewn into a baseball cap. And in high school, I was known as the hat girl because hats typically aren't allowed in high schools. I don't know about other people's high schools, but in ours, it wasn't. So obviously, that's sort of a lot of lies. This girl get to wear the hat, you know. But that was the reason why. So this becomes part of your identity. You know, you're the hat girl. You're the you know, you're the girl that went from tan to pale. You're the girl that lost all the muscle. And and so how was the emotional part of that, dealing with that coming out of treatment and then having all these identities that you just want, want to change? Oh, it's so hard. Like I said, you lose so much of yourself when you're going through this. Um, as we were saying, when I was in there, you don't get to choose what you wear. You wear, I wore the same hospital gown every day with the snowflakes. You don't get to choose what you eat half the time because I was restricted on my diet. I couldn't eat certain things because of the reactions with the chemo or whatever I was going through. Um, you don't get to do what you want to do. You're confined to do a bed. You you just don't get to choose anything. Um, there was the one day I went in, it's probably one of the hardest days, I went and I looked in the mirror and it was hard. I was on so many drugs and medication that I was in a really foggy place. And I went and I looked in the mirror and Oh, and before this, while I was kind of mentally, I don't know, not really there, I was losing all my hair. And at the time, I knew I was losing all my hair because it was all over me on the bed, but I didn't, for some reason, just was not registering what was going on. But then once I kind of mentally got back with it and the drugs were wearing off, I looked in the mirror and all my hair was gone and I didn't recognize who I was. I remember it took me about five seconds from when I walked to the bathroom and looked in the mirror to realize it was me looking back at me because I had lost about 30 pounds. I lost my tan completely. I had no hair. Um, I remember my face just looked very bony, everything, and no flush to your cheeks, nothing. And it, that day was really hard because you don't recognize it. So you, you lose so much of who you are. And again, yeah, I was the girl with cancer, and then I was the girl with the hat, and I just wanted to be Marina again. It's something you take for granted. It's just being who you are, you know? Besides for, again, a stigma or a name, the hack girl, the girl with cancer, this, that. I just wanted to be Marina. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And then uh, at some point, Dulce Stevens, our volunteer, walks into your house. And so tell us about that moment and and the happy times that followed. Oh, my gosh, yes. So that's really where it started, you know, because like we said, I was in this weird place with high school, and then I'm doing homework at the kitchen counter, and there's a knock on the door, and I don't think anything of it, and then my mom comes, and she's like, Marina, it's for you. And I'm like, who could be here for me? It's like 7.30 on a school night. Like, So I walk out, and there was Dulce, and she's there with the bag with the wand sticking out of it, the Make-A-Wish wand. And then she tells me I'm here for Make-A-Wish, and, I, you know, it took me a second. It's like, wait, what, me? Like do you have the wrong house? Like I was, I didn't think that was something I would, I don't know, would be an option for me. And then she sat me down and she got me all these gifts that all were so sweet. 
And so I was like, I get to wish for anything I want. She explains what Make-A-Wish is, and then she says, you get to wish for anything you want. And that was such a hard thing for me to understand. It's like, wait, anything I want? She's like, yeah, anything you want. And from there, I, it was a piece of paper, and I could write down my top three wishes. And that took me so long. I was so overwhelmed. I was excited if I'd get to go to the dollar store as a kid and pick out three things. Now you're saying I could wish for anything. So, um, yeah, so then I started, you know, I sat there and stared at this piece of paper for a while. And as far as choosing my wish, it, was, it wasn't that hard because I just had to think about that summer when I was sick. And I thought about all... <laughs> how hard it was because all I wanted to do when I sat in that room was I looked out the window and the beach wasn't too far away. I knew exactly where the beach was from my hospital window and I wanted to be at the beach. I wanted to be back with my sisters and my parents and my best friend Olga and I wanted to be on the beach. So, and at the time we surfed a lot growing up. My uncle gave me my first surfboard. The thing was old. It was dinged up. It, it had seen, it had seen some stuff. I would grow up, or growing up I'd fix it with my dad. We'd sit there with little fiberglass kids trying to fill in the dings and whatnot. So um, I wished for a custom surfboard. I was like, I want a beach experience for the rest of my life. I want something that will tell my story and what I've been through, almost like a medal of honor that I get to ride every day was what I wanted. And then you got to work on the design of it. You got to, you know, the phrasing that was on it. So tell us a little bit about, you know, we uh, people that are listening to this won't get to see We'll put it in, mm-hmm. in, in the notes for the for the episode, uh, the pictures of your surfboard. But just describe it a little bit about the design of it and the and the phrasing that was on it. Okay, so yep. So they brought me. So after I chose that I wanted a custom surfboard, they brought me into the Make a Wish office. So I came in. It was my first time seeing it, and I go down and I speak with the gentleman from Vagabond Surfboards, who's the one who designed it and everything. And we go through some phrases. I give them some hints at what I want, you know. Um, and again, it was just a conversation. So he worked some magic with this. Because then I come back to the Make-A-Wish office, and they had all the designs on a table. And they said, you get to choose one. And these designs were all phenomenal. So I finally chose the one that I think resonated the most with me. And what it was, it's it's a short board. So it's not too big, maybe five and a half feet tall. And there is a big crab on the front. And the crab was to represent cancer, my cancer. And he has a biohazard bucket in his little claws that he's dumping out. And the biohazard bucket was a joke when I was undergoing the chemo because uh, the chemo would come out of my pores so people couldn't touch me. My mom had to wash all my laundry separately. So as a joke, one day the nurse stuck a biohazard sticker to my forehead and we thought it was the funniest thing. So, And I still have the picture of me with a little biohazard sticker on my forehead. So that's why the crab has the biohazard bucket to represent the chemo and the, I don't know, the poison at that time kind of in my life. And out of it is dumping out waves. There's waves coming out of the biohazard bucket. And they're lime green, which represents diffuse um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is this lime green ribbon. So that's why there's the lime green waves coming out of it. And then in the waves, um, it says, let's see, I'm going to struggle with this one, diffuse. It's the initials for diffuse non-Hodgkin's lymphoma anyway. And then on the front of the board, it says, live life like you stole it. And that is a phrase that my dad told me when I was pretty much shortly after I got diagnosed and we'd talk about the experience. Because I did feel like I stole my life back from a cruel fate because I wasn't meant to be here today. You know, if it weren't for 
the phenomenal doctors and nurses and technology and Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital, I wouldn't be here. So I felt like I stole my life back and now I was just taking it on a sweet joy ride and that's something that I try and live to every day is I'm gonna live it like it might not be here tomorrow because you know nothing's guaranteed and that board reminds me of it every time I look at it. And then wish day. Uh, what was that like? Oh, yes, because Make-A-Wish, you know, it's not just a custom surfboard. No, no, no. They're going to give you that and then some, a lot more. So Make-A-Wish Day, they told us to drive up to Melbourne, Florida. And that was a funny day, too, because we're driving. And I remember uh, Katie calls me and from Make-A-Wish, and she asked me, where are you guys at? And my dad's always playing jokes on people. And he's like, tell her we're uh, five minutes away from Key West. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, yeah, we're five minutes away from Key West. She panicked, you're where? Because Melbourne's, what, like seven hours north of Key West? And anyway, then we're like, no, it's a joke. We're, we're almost there. So we pull up in the car, and it's at a really cute park on the beach. And they had the balloons, and they had all these people there. They had the Melbourne surf team from the high school, the local high school, Nikki Vison's, who was a professional surfer, is there. A lot of people from Make-A-Wish that helped make this wish happen were present. Um, I, they had my board and all these gifts. It was just a huge beach party, which I couldn't imagine a more perfect setting and way to receive the board and, and I think set the tone for the rest of my life. That day really did set that tone for me. Yeah, making uh, memorable experiences, that's, uh, that's part of you know, who we are and what we do. Oh, God. That's something it's that we're amazing. Really, really, yeah, we're really proud of. And you still own the surfboard? You still oh, use yes. it? Oh, yes. Yep, so that day we got to go surfing. I went surfing with all the guys and the kids, the girls from the surf team, Nikki Vison's. We all went out, and it was incredible. And then, yeah, to this day, I own the board. I'm terrified of hurting it. Like I said, it's my baby. I'm so proud of it, but I still own the board. I, now that I'm working more, it's a little bit difficult to find the time to use it. But my sister, my youngest sister, loves to surf, so she'll borrow it now and then, and she has the coolest board on the beach. She's always so proud to walk around with it, so it's really the wish that just keeps on giving. That's awesome. Yeah. So um, looking back on that whole time, you know, from when you're diagnosed with cancer to when Wish Day happens, you know, what do you think that that has taught you? What, what has that taught you about yourself? It taught me so much. It's, you see how far, like that day made me realize how much we had overcome. And not just myself as a family, you know, cancer never just affects one person. I think it's a ripple effect. And days like the day with Make-A-Wish, it's also a ripple effect, you know. It, affect, it affected my family, it affected all of us, and it made us realize we did it, you know. You talk about this fight, and it's like, we did it, we fought it, we won. And like I said, and then, it really, it made me realize now I have this huge life ahead of me, and it's hard to put into words. I feel like I say that too much, but. No more I never moments. No more I never. Now it's, I'm going to. It was not a, I never, didn't cross my mind once. It's everything, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do next? Speaking of what you're going to do next, so now you're a pilot. I am. Yeah, so tell I us a bit about what you're doing what you're doing with your life right now. You're 26, and you know what are you doing with your life now? Yep, so that was another thing in the hospital. It's funny where I sat, again, in my hospital bed, looking right out toward the beach kind of was. Um, being from Hollywood, Florida, you would see all the planes coming into Miami. The arrivals are right there out the window. And I'd stare at them like, oh, I can't wait till that's me. 
because since I was little, I wanted to be a pilot. My dad is a pilot. My grandfather is retired um, as an airline pilot and in the Air Force. My mom and my mom was a flight attendant. So I always wanted to be a pilot. So I'd sit there daydreaming because there's not much else to do. And imagining it was me on that plane and I'm coming in from, I don't know, Madrid or somewhere amazing. And I dreamed of that. And then now I'm actually, that dream became a reality. Like I said, it was one of those things that afterwards I'm going to become a pilot. And I went ahead and I did that. I fly for an airline in South Florida. It's relatively new, Global Crossing Airlines. I'm a first officer. I actually start my upgrade to captain next Monday. It's very soon, a lot of studying to do. What's crazy is I'm flying with my father. He's with the airline as well. So I'm with dad. Uh, he was actually one of my instructors on the plane when I first started here. I got a promotion. I'm now the assistant chief pilot for the airline. So I'm able to help out. We fly a gorgeous aircraft, the A320, the plane I dreamed of flying again since I was little. I grew up watching my dad fly it. And now I'm able to fly the same type of aircraft, about 150 to 180 seats. And we're going to phenomenal destinations around the world. I've been to Greenland and South America, Central America, all over the U.S. It's, I am so blessed. It's awesome. Well, you're a great story of strength and inspiration. And um, we're so glad you're doing, you're doing well. And, um, you know, your wish is... One of those very unique ones that we've granted, and to see the person you have become uh, is a testament to your strength and your um, resilience, you know, to get through all that. And, you know, we're happy to have you part of the Make-A-Wish family and uh, happy to have you uh, as part of the podcast. No, thank you so much. And like I said, Make-A-Wish is what they did for me and my family is something I'll be forever grateful for. They did something that I can't comprehend the amount of love that they showed and how much they cared about me and my family is something that is so phenomenal. This foundation really does change people's lives and they changed mine. And I'm so, so grateful for it. So thank you. Thanks, Marina. And thank you for listening to World of Wishes podcast produced by Make-A-Wish Southern Florida. Please help support this podcast by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. You can also listen to our archive shows at worldofwishespodcast.org. To learn more about making wishes come true, visit us at wish.org slash SFLA.